This is a Radio.com original. The one thing that's just wonderful about my job is every day I'm driving something different. You know, it may be a, a Mazda 3 one day and, and something like a, a, 9, a 911 Turbo the next. You just never know. Such, know, a, such like, a life. Yeah. <laughs> such a life. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Talking About Cars podcast where everybody has a car story. I'm Randy Cardoon, a guy who loves classic cars and remembers, although it's hard to sometimes, the joys of cruise nights when we actually went cruising. And that over there is Hot Rod Bob Beck. And Hello, of course, a purveyor of cool rides himself. Hello, Bob. Hey, Randy, how are you doing this morning? Bob, Good I have today. a question for you right off the top. Okay. Very you in 1981 1981 i was in dallas texas i was working for a company called bmw a small car company that we know i think i've heard of it yeah and uh, i was uh, a district manager so i traveled all over the country for them back then was the year our guest i by the way was doing my little small town radio thing Uh i was actually working in bishop california before making the big leap to reno nevada Big Bishop. Yes, Bishop, California. 1981 was the year our guest began a show that, believe it or not, is still going today. Over 1,800 episodes. A little bit more than what we've done on Talking About Cars. Just a few, yeah. Motor Week began in 1981, originates then as it does today on Maryland Public Television out there. And you could see it on PBS stations all over the U.S. I'm told you can also see it on the Motor Trend app, or at least on Motor Trend. So you get it there. Uh, It has had the same host. It has had the same producer. And talk about job security when the guy that hosts is also the senior producer. Oh. So he hired himself. He could fire himself, but I doubt he's ever wanted to do that. I wonder if he has uh, good uh, employee reviews with himself. That's a good question. What is his uh, review meetings like at the end of the year? We'll ask him about that because he's standing by All right. on Motor Week's John Davis. Ladies and gentlemen, let's cue the cheap sound effects. And there he is joining us now, John Davis, the host of Motor Week, the show we have been watching for it seems like a long time because it is you are sir may i say and thank you so much for joining us today this is a thrill for all of us you are the walter cronkite the johnny carson of automobile shows (laughs) i mean it's true you are the man you have been around you you were there at the beginning and before car shows were really known to everybody that has an app you were doing it when there was no such thing as an app that's correct now, I guess we're, I, I wouldn't say we originated it, but we certainly were the first um, weekly or even ongoing series about cars in this country. Uh, arguably, uh, there have been a, there were a couple others uh, in other parts of the world that came and went. Uh, but basically, in 1981, we went on the air in October, and we've been on the air ever since, and this is our 40th anniversary season. Yeah, That's your amazing. staying power is amazing. Uh, what do you attribute that to? Because stupidity. You, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we just happened on this right thing. Yeah. Well, we do 52 shows a year. 
26 of them are all new. The other 26 are at least half new because that's what our network requires to be uh, considered a new show. So uh, with the exception of, um, we're really, that's the way it is. We are in a constant, uh, you know, every week we've got to fill up that 30 minutes and get it out and hopefully make keep people informed as well as entertained. And only somebody that has, that's a lunatic would design a program like that and be doing it fully. We've been able to surround ourselves with a good team of lunatics. So we're still here and we're still doing it through pandemic. I mean, we had to pause for a couple of months uh, and we and basically just migrate everything online. But we came back in uh, June uh, with new shows. And so it's been nonstop, almost nonstop for 40 years. Wow. You know what's really fun is that you can go on YouTube and look at your very first episode and you could see what Sadly. it is. <laughs> it's like that fellow should have had a, gotten his day job right or something. <laughs> anyway. In other words, no amount of money will take it off of YouTube. It's there. John it's has tried to enough. get rid of it. Yeah. But, stuck, yeah. but it's well, and, and I remember because I, I looked at it recently and you were, you were uh, looking at the Ford Escort. This kind of yeah. tells you how long it's been. It's the Ford Escort and the Fiat Strata. Oh, and if you remember the Fiat cool. Strata, which I completely forgot about until I yeah. saw that episode. Most people have. It's yeah. am exactly. It's they, amazing. They didn't survive many winters in the Northeast. No. <laughs> but it's amazing how many vehicles had the body style of the original Volkswagen Rabbit. Well, that was that was the benchmark, wasn't it? Yeah. Especially in Europe. And, of course, the, the Ford Escort was the Ford World Car, and it was based on the same premise. So everybody was jumping on board. And indeed, you know, the Escort was really quite a milestone vehicle for the U.S. It was, even though it wasn't exactly the same car they were building in Europe, it was close enough that, um, just sorry about the phones, I can't completely. You're a busy man, I understand. Yeah, no, they're just ringing off the hook <laughs> as if somebody really wants me on, the, on this today. <laughs> anyway, so other than you guys. It's a competition, so, good. You know, it's. They were milestone automobiles. And when you consider what else was rolling around in 1981, they were pretty amazing. And especially when it came to space efficiency, although to this day, no one has done better packaging than the golf slash rabbit slash whatever. Uh, they, they just have always did nail, you know, the interior capacity versus the exterior uh, size. Can't talk either. And they still do today. So, but yeah, they were, copies, they were pretty. They were pretty cool cars, but unless you owned one, so. <laughs> yeah. I remember the Omni Horizon. I remember yeah. when they were doing oh, that, God. and Chrysler actually took that body style. Yeah, very quick, funny story. We they took us up to every summer. You used to go to the um, Detroit Automakers Proving Grounds to see what they had new coming out in the fall. And we were up there to see the first Omni Horizon and get a chance to drive it. And it was a terrible, terrible rainy day, just pouring buckets. And they had part of their test track we could go real quickly. So every journalist would get in it, do a couple of loops, come back in. And this one journalist who's, I think he's gone now, I'm not sure, so I won't take his name in vain. He comes back in and this thing is just smoking. There's smoke everywhere. It's all brake smoke. He had just apparently just beat this little Omni or Horizon to death. And he, he gets out and he was a very tall, stately gentleman. And he said something like, I think there's something wrong with this car. <laughs> but it was obvious that he'd just been driving it like he was at Le Mans. 
<laughs> oh um, man! But that was actually a pretty serviceable uh, little vehicle. It really was, and it that, that was a joint back. venture with Volkswagen, wasn't it? You know, I don't remember. It may have been, but they got a lot of life out of it because they built several different versions. We had a guy at the drag strip that would run the Volkswagen races using the Volkswagen engine. And then when he ran the Mopar races, he would swap in the Mopar version of it. And the only difference was the logo on the casting. Yeah, I really don't remember. That's a good question. But, you know, it's very possible, I think, at that time. uh, I mean, Chrysler, I think, had a four-cylinder engine, but maybe not something small enough for that one. But I think you're – I, I have long since been a, I, I no longer can keep people used to think I had all these details about every car I ever made in my head. The gray matter just doesn't handle it anymore. So I do remember funny stories, but I don't remember the details. You're not like Bob Hope that used to have all his little punchlines in a little uh, index card library somewhere. They don't, they don't keep that with you. No, I really don't. I'll take notes because of, of my age. But no, I, uh, I I really haven't got resorted to that yet. But who knows? Maybe you will tomorrow. So yeah, last we'll factoid. Today, so. Last factoid about that body style, of course. Carol Shelby's had a yeah. version of that. So if Carol Shelby could do something with that body style, you know, it's somewhat serviceable. Well, I guess that was in his days where he was rebelling against Ford. So <laughs> yes, he was, he was basically <laughs> looking for things to do. If Hubmobile had something going, he'd be doing a Shelby version of that. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you real quickly, he is Carol Shelby. Every everybody that's ever been on your show is probably that's ever met him says the same thing. He was one of the most genuine and most likable human beings to people that didn't know him. <laughs> I'm not talking about somebody had to work yeah. with him. But the people that didn't know him uh, that you ever met, and he always treated you like you were a, a long-lost uh, a compadre, uh, just a genuinely uh, wonderful person to meet. And I have to say, if I had to list, you know, the people that I most admire that uh, uh, that I've met in my life, he'd be at the top of the list by far, by easily. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Very good. So we like to do on this show, John, is we like to talk a little bit about how people got started, your starting point in your car story. And, and I'm, I'm curious right off the top. So let's just go way back when we were all kids. Were you the product of a Chevy family or a Ford family or? Ford. F-O-R-D. No mm-hmm. question. I'll try and make this brief. I was a Southern <laughs> kid, born in North Carolina. So while the West Coast was doing their, you know, street rod and, and sports car thing, we were basically forming NASCAR. So, you know, my uncle had a, a flathead Ford coupe and he had long since uh, learned how to drive it around the mountains of Western North Carolina. He was basically very influential uh, to me. My dad was a new car guy, uh, post-World War II. You bought a new car every year if you could afford it. He couldn't afford it, but he did it anyway. So my first time I got behind the wheel of a car and actually drove it, I was probably about 10, 11, 12. My grandfather had a 53 DeSoto and he had a long gravel driveway at his uh, farm. So basically I'd get in it and it was of course three on the column and I go forward to one end of the driveway and I back up and I do this all afternoon long when we would go visit over the weekends. And from there, you know, I was just loved cars, but I also got infatuated with airplanes. So by the time I got to college, I went in and became an, uh, an aerospace engineer, mechanical aerospace engineer at North Carolina State. 
came out, there was no, uh, there were no jobs. It was the end of the Vietnam War, got an MBA, went on to New York for a while to work in Wall Street. But, and it, that's where the transportation comes in. I was basically an analyst of transportation stocks. I worked my way through college and radio and television. And once you do broadcasting, you cannot get it out of your system. You are stuck for life. Yeah. And so the first chance I, I, you know, you know, that's what you do. And that's, can you imagine doing anything else really? Even if you found something that paid reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So I came, um, I had a chance to go to Maryland to uh, produce uh, another iconic show, Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser that started financial TV. And uh, about five years into being the a head producer of that, I had a chance to do a, another pilot. Did motor did a couple of things, but Motor Week was the one I wanted to do because nobody had successfully brought the automotive magazine to TV in this country anyway, and not really in the world as far as a, an ongoing series. And so we popped up uh, with a pilot. It sat on the shelf. That was 1978. Sat on the shelf for two years. We heard that another station was going to do some kind of an automotive series. So on July the 5th, 1981, my boss, a gentleman named Warren Park, who was our program director, called me in and said, so-and-so is going to do an automotive show. Uh, how can you be on the air in January? This was July the 5th. I said, I'll be on the air in October. And we were. <laughs> and uh, so I assembled a, a group of people that had helped with the pilot. Most of them already were employees at Maryland Public Television, where I still work. And uh, we did the show and it went on in, uh, uh, regionally up and down the East Coast and then nationally a short time later. And uh, what looked like it was going to be fun for a couple of years turned out to be a career. So here we are. 40 years. 40 years. Can you imagine? Yeah. Could you have believed it would have lasted 40 no. years when you started? No. Craig Singhouse, one of our original uh, presenters on the show, uh, he, he said, yeah, he was a real car guy. He had a, a Shelby Mustang at the time that he raced. And he said, this is going to be a lot of fun. You know, three, five years, whatever. We're just going to enjoy it because how many chances do you get times do you get a chance to do something like this, especially with somebody else paying for it. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, we just had no idea that it would take on this life, but it, you know, it has, it has been, of course, everything in, in our business uh, can be a struggle. There have been plenty of bleak times. We didn't have any advertising. Um, you know, the couple of times we almost went away, but the faith from our, not only our viewers, but I have to say the management at, at MPT has been behind us from day one and PBS. Uh, you know, we're one of the longest running PBS series uh, these days. So uh, all the way around, uh, a lot of people had a lot of faith in us and they stuck with us until we would get over the hump. And we, we went off and tried commercial syndication for a couple of years while also being on public TV. And that kind of got us over one hump. So a lot of people have helped us along the way. They said, you know, this deserves to keep going. And it certainly wasn't this face. So they're just the, con <laughs> the concept. And um, I'm, I'm just delighted that we're still around and still helping people. Because car ownership is a big deal. I don't care how you cut it. Well, you, you definitely came up with a format and the presentation level that has appeased everybody. I mean, how many car shows yeah. have come and gone over the years that were we thought were good, but you've persevered? Well, a couple of things I like to think that we did different. Uh, number one, I was so bad at the beginning. I mean, I had done news. I had done news on the air. 
both radio and TV. And that's, you know, pretty stiff in those days. And I couldn't afford another talent. I had looked around for someone locally and there was a, a gentleman that was doing some car tests on a TV station, but he, frankly, he wanted real money. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And I figured I was so bad. We quoted, we made a, a quote at the beginning or a motto or whatever. And we said, the cars are the stars. And that's what we've always maintained. So when you tune in, you hear me a lot, but you don't see me a lot because if you see me, you're not seeing the car. And the, and the opinion I'm getting is not just an opinion of one person. It's a staff of 20 people. We have log books. Everyone drives the cars and experiences them. If someone's got a family, their home seeing the vehicle works with, you know, a child seat, all of that stuff. We also spend, because you're not looking at me all the time, you're seeing a lot more details about the car. And that was a concept of how do we be, how do we fit in with the automotive journalism today? Because I saw the program not as a car driver or road and track or motor trend, but a combination of them and maybe some popular mechanics and a little lifestyle thrown in uh, because I knew we had to appeal to a fairly broad audience, much broader than just the automotive enthusiast. So we designed a magazine show no segment longer than five or six minutes, most of them three and four. You won't get bored, hopefully. And also, in the back of my mind, we could take pieces out and make it a commercial show if we ever had to, and we did have to. And it has remained basically the same concept uh, for 40 years. We change all the, you know, the trappings, the, the graphics and everything. But one uh, sales guy that worked for a network we were on for a while said to me, he said, you're the only guy I know that can sell the same product year in, year out for like decades at a time. And I said, well, <laughs> I think it's because the cars that are the stars change all mm -hmm. the time. And that's what people want to see. At least yeah. I hope so. I love the fact that uh, you mentioned that the only reason I, that you're anchoring, if I understood you correctly, was because everybody else you wanted to bring in wanted too much money. And meanwhile, they wanted, every they wanted every, some money. Period. And every I mean, program were, director in Los in Los Angeles and big cities and small cities all across you know, radio and television stations across America are going. That's what I'm doing. I told you that works. <laughs> you do not go into certainly public television, but really almost any broadcasting, unless you're a big star on a national stage and expect to make a really great living. And for that matter, automotive journalism has always been that way. Mm -hmm. um, I can't tell you the number of really fine writers that I've known over the years that somewhere around their 40s or so, they drop out and go to the dark side over in PR, they say. And that was, I didn't mean to, to defame anyone, but that's always what we used to call it. And they do it because of job security, they've got, they get a pension plan, they get more yeah. money, whatever. And so you've got to love what you're doing. And obviously I love what I'm doing and uh, probably, hopefully will keep loving it for as long as they'll let me, so. And for those Lucky. people, and for those people who haven't seen the show yet, uh, all seven of you, you have yeah. to check it in. Be check it out because I just checked in the one where you were talking about the uh, uh, the Defender, and on that show was a segment, and I kid you not, Bob, a segment about electric EV lawnmowers. Yes. Oh yeah. Of the future. Yes. That's that was, great. that was a great segment. 
I'm glad you liked it. And we have, uh, this is another story. And again, if you want to move on to something. No, no. You see, we're a podcast and we live for these stories. So I say go. Go. About almost 15 years ago. Well, no, wait a minute. It was 2001, uh, right before 9-11. I was asked to give a little address to a group from the U.S. Department of Energy in Philadelphia. And I went up and, and actually that was the first time I got to ride a Segway. It was kind of, that was an interesting day. But this was group was called Clean Cities and they're a part of the mm-hmm. Department of Energy that looks at localities and what they're doing about uh, alternative fuels, so all sorts of alternative fuels. And it was, we were looking for something to hang our hat on. Everybody was doing safety. A lot of people were talking about just fuel economy, but we wanted something that would fit in with our public television uh, persona. And I thought this alternative inter- energy thing is fascinating because we're talking about you know, propane, natural gas, uh, hydrogen, you name it, and electricity. So we have worked very closely with the U.S. Department of Energy in seeking out interesting stories and new technologies since then. It started about a year or so after that. Excuse me. And uh, so we like to ferret out these stories about where we're going with particularly electricity now because it's so uh, it's such the hot button but over the years we've done more video stories about alternative fuel than i think everybody else combined and uh, we're very proud of that and so we look to the future and we're not afraid to embrace it but i gotta tell you I am not somebody that thinks all the internal combustion engine vehicles are going to disappear overnight, uh, but I do think there's there's plenty of space to grow, become more efficient, and also at the same time, you know, keep our love of cars and, and what they do for us, both psychologically and uh, as practical vehicles. So we're we're a big we're big fans of the of the clean cities folks at, at DOE. With that in mind. With the push towards alternate fuels a few yeah. years ago, and, and you're, when you got started with that, now it's been it seems to have been abandoned for the most part, and everyone's focusing on electricity, but no one's focusing on how do we get it. Yeah, that's it's really true because it's not a one size fits all scenario. We've already seen, uh, especially when there's been something like a, a hurricane uh, in the Northeast, that you need to have fuels that are locally sourced that are easily able to be used when, you know, if the power's out, what are you going to do? You can't always rely on a generator, uh, big rigs. We really, despite what you're hearing from a lot of big uh, manufacturers that make uh, powertrains for over the road truckers, you know, are they going to have the, the battery capacity uh, to pull big payloads long distances or something like a, a biodiesel fuel, a more practical, or uh, natural gas, uh, especially if they're, look at what Long Beach is doing uh, there. They've been uh, playing around with various uh, alternative fuels for a long time. Uh, they're like a leader in the country in alternative fuels for uh, big rigs. So I think it's unfortunate that we are turning our attention solely to electricity, because as you put, your, put the head, nail on the head, Bob, is the grid going to be able to handle it? If we have, if we're building 15, 16 million EVs a year and everybody is plugging them in overnight, all of a sudden that doesn't become a downtime anymore. Is, are we going to be able to handle it? Uh, 
and our most homes set up to be able to rewire them to be able to, to uh, uh, charge up these vehicles efficiently uh, and without uh, worrying about fires. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions that have to be answered before we just go full speed ahead towards yeah. uh, all electric vehicles for the light duty fleet. And I know what California wants to do, and there are other places like Quebec is doing the same. And who knows what uh, is what the new uh, administration in Washington is going to propose? And we know GM and Volkswagen and Nissan have all set this 3035 time frame. I'm a skeptic. I don't think that's. I think we're going there, and I think we're going to get there. I just think it's going to take a little longer. Um, I've always said 2050 was a more realistic time frame. And by the time you have a couple of more administrations come in and leave. You know, I think that's what you're going to be, that around 2050, light duty anyway, mm -hmm. uh, everything will either be electric or it will be some kind of very, very advanced hybrid system. I, I think, yeah, I think it's going to have to be people, uh, places like New York City, yeah, the city aspect of, of Los Angeles, Cleveland, uh, even Houston. <clears throat> You've got a situation where people live in apartment buildings. Right. How do they charge a vehicle? They don't well, necessarily you know, have parking. They've done a lot of experimentation with the, um, you know, touchless, like you'd have your touchless yeah. uh, uh, iPhone chargers and so forth. But I, I don't know if they solve the stray cat problem, which no. they, they used to be referred to by <laughs> some of the engineers um, that would walk underneath. But yeah, there's a lot huge problems. I have uh, several friends, good friends, who would buy an EV tomorrow, but they live in apartments. And they are not allowed to have, and they, you know, it's a not, there's no garage and the car is parked at a curb, but you can't have wires running out, somebody will trip over it. So people that own apartment buildings and so forth, they are going to have to invest uh, in putting that infrastructure in. And we're talking 14 years from now for this to be, yeah. you know, California's uh, no more new vehicles that way, uh, light duty in Quebec and I think that's pretty quick. I think it's going to do wonders for the used car market. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think uh, a good used car is going to be enormously in demand uh, in California for a while. So, like I said, it's not that we—it's not that we shouldn't go there. I think we should. It's not that we're not going to get there, but I do believe the politicians have pushed it uh, a little fast. I guess that's their job. But we've seen this happen before. We saw California with an EV mandate many years ago and automakers and everybody spent a lot of money on it. They bought, they bought golf cart companies just so they could meet the rules. And then it was pulled back. Maybe that'll happen again. Maybe it won't. Uh, I just wish that one time everybody could make a rational decision about when, what these deadlines are instead of doing it purely for political gain. Yeah. Now, I heard that, you know, maybe the, this that whatever Washington does might be a little more reasonable and we'll see. But uh, I actually do have faith that it will work out OK in the end. It's just that it's not going to be a, a totally smooth road to get there. There you and, go, John. You're, you're asking uh, politicians to be. I know. What, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah. You know, and then what are you going to do for people like me that really are going to miss that that roar that. I don't care how many synthetic sounds you put in an electric yeah. vehicle. It's not the same. So I think it may do wonders for the uh, uh, used vehicle market, especially if you've got something like a, 
Oh, gosh. A Hellcat. Can you imagine yeah, what yeah. Hellcats will go for in 20 years? Well, and, and that's another issue that's coming up, too, is yeah. with the uh, Stellantis merger, what's going to happen with Dodge and their Price performance yeah. lines? I don't think I don't think anything's going to happen to Dodge and their performance lines. It may be the only thing that you see a Dodge name on. Yeah. Uh, although they did just bring back the, the, the caravan. Um, but basically, I think I think the the focus of that merger was you've got a truck business and a performance business that is just going to town. And if we make a lot of EVs, we can offset that with, uh, you know, what small number of high performance vehicles you're going to uh, produce. I've heard the death knell for V8s, I think, three times in my career. Yeah. They're still here. Sometimes they get smaller. Sometimes they just get usually get just a lot more efficient. But I don't think uh, we've seen the last of V8 engines, maybe 10 years from now, but certainly not in the short term. Let's uh, hope by then the Challenger and the Charger somewhat get redesigned. Yes, well, that's, that's another that is... story. You know, it's <laughs> maybe, you know, redesign in my world and in your world means, you know, body up. I mean, I mean, frame up. But what we're starting to see more and more of is, hey, that frame was really good. Why don't we just put a real new body on it? It's almost like going back to the 60s and 70s. Yeah. The new mm -hmm. uh, Nissan Frontier, basically same uh, chassis they've had for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it looks really good and everything else is new. So I think they can keep certain key things. If you're not doing a new frame and you don't have to re-engineer uh, uh, re the engine, you've saved billions of dollars mm -hmm. in development costs right there. And I don't really see anything wrong with that. No, and they continue. To, they should continue to do that. And yeah. we've heard the rumors of the Barracuda coming back and replacing the Challenger. And it just it hasn't happened. They've they've held back on that. But I mean, we're talking about a twenty year old design yeah. chassis. Uh, exactly. I'm wondering if Fiat's paying Mercedes royalties for the parts because <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I, I mean, that's surprised that's, either. Yeah. yeah. But the other thing with the Stellantis uh, agreement, we've got brands that left this country because they weren't popular. How do they, you know, and Fiat's proving it right now by not being able to sell anything. Yeah. Yeah, which is the which is the one brand that Stellantis now has you think will be introduced to reintroduce to the U.S. first? Let's see, uh, oh, Opel, Vauxhall, wow. uh, well, or Peugeot? They keep saying it's going to be Peugeot. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, I have very vivid memories of Peugeots. They were wonderful to drive. They had great engines, but a lot of the little things just didn't match up. I mean, you'd be, you would reach for the door lock button and it would fall off. Yeah. It would be something like that. You know, you I heard know, you had to pay extra for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they were admittedly minor things, but when you were looking at what, especially during those periods, what the Japanese were doing about quality from you know every part of the vehicle, yeah. you just couldn't make excuses for either the domestics or some of the Europeans when little things didn't work, the door handles coming off. So they're going to have to come back. I do. I, I must say, Peugeots are very different vehicles now. They're they're no relation to what they no. were before. But people in this country have very long memories, except and the politicians because they brought the Fiat back. Yeah, but. You're right. Fiat's had a, a real struggle despite building some very, very interesting vehicles that are fun to drive. 
And you look at what I've looked for years at what Peugeot has been marketing in Europe, yep. some extremely desirable vehicles and very cleverly, cleverly done people movers. But I think establishing themselves back in the U.S. is going to be tough. But I do think they'll try. I think pride will bring them back. Mm. Very good. So let's go back to you in your first car. What was your first car? Ah. My first car was a used 1967 Mustang six cylinder. My second car was a used 1969 Mustang. Uh, so I had two Mustangs being a Ford family right off the bat. Uh, my, my, the Mustang I bought uh, first uh, actually only ran on five cylinders. It had a hole in a valve. And um, I took that car a lot of places before I finally got around to doing a valve job on it. Uh, but I've always kind of, you know, I wanted some, I was a young guy. I wanted something sporty and uh, had a good time with it. So uh, I grabbed after that, I got a little money saved up when I started working uh, in Maryland and I bought a Di Tommaso Pantera. That's really the only exotic, semi-exotic car I ever owned. Still a Ford. Uh, still a Ford. Mm -hmm. I knew how to work on the engine and that came in handy because it had a, a dual two uh, uh, distributors on it. So dual point distributors, and they one of the points would invariably close up, and after I don't know a couple of weeks, there was no way you could tighten them down, so they wouldn't. So you could be out in the middle of nowhere, and it would just stop. So you had to be very adept at being able to open the back, get the cowl off the top of the engine, go in there with a flashlight, take the top off the distributor, disconnect one set of points because it would run fine on the other, put it back together, crank it up, and go home. <laughs> and the other thing, though, what it had, it was such a mishmash of parts. It had French uh, window lift motors. It had a Lucas uh, windshield wiper, which was this long spiral gear that would get stripped and the wipers would all of a sudden flop over dead and you'd have to pull <laughs> off the road and get in behind the front right wheel and pull off a shroud and pull this thing out and push it back in again so you'd have uh, wipers. I mean, it was an amazing car. I loved it. I'd still love to have that car today. But every weekend I was under it, basically uh, snow, uh, heat, putting something back together, <laughs> except you never had to do anything to the engine except the points, except the distributor. That was it. The engine was a Boss Mustang engine. It was bulletproof except for that one item. You uh, may have just answered one of our other questions, of course, when we ask a lot of our guests. The car that you once had that you would like to get back someday, is that the uh, Pantera? I would think so, yeah. I, I think I'd love to get either. I had a 73 that had the rubber bumpers on it, and a lot of people didn't like it, but I thought it finished off the shape of the car. But basically, I guess I'd actually want a, a, a 74 even because they had improved some of the cooling. But yeah, that yeah. Uh, the Pantera was a really cool car and uh, I had a chance. All right, when I was looking for this car, it came down to a Pantera that I could afford. Or at that time, you could buy for the same price, the same vintage Dino uh, mm. Ferrari Dinos. Mm -hmm. But everybody was basically looked down their nose at a Dino because it was basically had a Fiat motor in it. Yeah. So I had, I had a choice between the two, but the, the domestic engine won me over. I knew I could work on that. Of course, a nice Pantera is worth, you know, what, 70 to 100 grand a day and a Dino is worth a half a million. So uh, I didn't, yeah. you know, there you go. You win yeah. some, you lose some. 
But yeah, I'd like to have my Pantera back. I had a lot of great memories of it. So what's in your garage right now? Nothing terribly exotic. I mean, we drive everything in the world at work. I've got a 2014 Mercedes SLK, and we bought that a couple of years ago because we I had had one of the original 1990 Miatas for a long, long time and finally sold that. And I actually sold that to buy a Mini Cooper. So I've got a, a Mini Cooper, a First year Mini Cooper, first year of the BMW Mini Cooper. I've got uh, the SLK, and then we've got a good old Subaru that uh, gets us through everything, and a, and a 2003 Ford Ranger. So it's not a particularly uh, uh, exciting um, group of cars, but it's mine. And because, you know, I'm every, the one thing that's just wonderful about my job is every day I'm driving something different. You know, it mm-hmm. may be a, a Mazda 3 one day and, and something like a uh, uh, a 911 turbo the next you just never know i know, I know. Such, a life. Life. Yeah. <laughs> such a life we've been very very fortunate i mean it's uh we we really are and although as i will say the pandemic has put a uh, a dent in that sometimes uh uh because of you know, everything is so compressed as far as shooting now and the cars come in later and they don't stay as long because everybody's uh, taking kind of shortcuts to, to meet the demands of whatever uh, business they are. Uh, sometimes I get in a car and I drive it for about an hour and that's it, you know, so, but that's okay. I don't care. But with all the pandemic issues and you brought those up too, but the Detroit auto show, the LA auto yeah. show, those shows are not going to happen. What are the manufacturers going to be doing or, or where do you think they're going to be focusing their advertising budgets now? Uh, because they can't, get the public to see the vehicles you know before all the pandemic it was obvious that the big auto shows were struggling i mean we had seen over the ever since the 2009 uh, meltdown you know a lot of manufacturers did not go back to the auto shows the germans were some of the first to pull out uh, uh, even looking ahead at what they're trying to do in in europe next year with geneva they can't seem to line up a critical mass so it's most people, and I think it's probably true, think that the, the grand, huge auto show, as we've all known it, is not going to come back in the same way. And the reason I think that is a mistake is the car companies don't want to spend huge amounts of money to unveil something new, especially when they can do it uh, through the Internet or through a, uh, before even before the Internet, uh, they started doing it on the Internet with a pandemic. They can invite all of us somewhere to see the vehicle first for less money than they can rent the hall and pay off everyone you know, to show it at, at L.A. or New York or Detroit. So you have new people coming into marketing. They're younger. They're not tied to the past as much. They're looking at their budgets and they're saying there's got to be other ways to do this. The pandemic has shown them that there is. So I'm just not, I'm very pessimistic that the auto shows, the big national auto shows are going to survive in anything like we used to see them. However, the regional shows, the smaller shows or shows that are all really now refocused away from the press and the public to just the public, I think they will survive because nowhere else can people see all the vehicles in one place and touch and get in them and see if when they're wearing their heaviest coat, if it's still as comfortable as when they're wearing shorts and a t-shirt 
all I think they will do okay. And I think the dealers sponsored regional shows uh, have a life and maybe even more of a life because people are not going into the showrooms, but here's one place they can go, go and not have all the salespeople, you know, hopping all over them. Uh, but the big national shows are in trouble. And um, I think it's really sad because seeing everything close together, that hoopla of the unveiling, it's important. But if they're going to do it, they've got to stop doing something else. Mm-hmm. And that is show everybody what they're going to show at the auto show before the auto show. Yeah. And that's something they've been doing a lot in the last 10 years. And it kind of takes the sparkle out. Oh, there's embargoes. But if you've already seen everything and you've already got all the information and when you're in the audience and they take the wraps off, it's kind of pretty anticlimactic. So. You know what I think they need to do? I think they need to start moving their money towards new technology. For example, car podcasts. <laughs> I think this is something that could very well work. <laughs> Right on the dashboard. Mm -hmm. And there are certain car podcasts that would probably work for that. But, you know, yeah, we've done we've done over I think we've done 250 of them. We do. We don't do them. I'm not sure what your frequency is. Ours is is now about once every two weeks. And we were one of the first and we probably had our families and two other people listening. Uh, (laughs) And. They're a good way to do what we're doing today, which is just be yourself because, you know, you're not scripted. Uh, and and I really come to to love them. And I'm always. No, looking not. Around. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, you got no, certain things you Go have ahead. to cover. I mean, I have a cheat sheet, too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but really, uh, besides from that, it's like whatever happens, happens. And um and so I love I love the automotive podcast. I want I tend to listen to them more than I watch other uh, automotive TV shows these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're talking about the auto shows, though, one of the things that always attracted me from the first time I went to a car show was the uh, concept vehicles. Oh yes, and I can remember the first car show I went to. The concept for the Stingray was as you walked in the door of the Pan Pacific Auditorium in Los Angeles. That picture just that vehicle just stuck in my mind my whole life and when i was able to buy a corvette finally that was the reason it was the car you know that that car was so exciting right i wanted a corvette i couldn't agree with you more and you you and i bob and i'm, I'm not i don't want to pull randy in here because i don't think he's <laughs> old as, 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 as either one of us but and i apologize bob if i'm wrong <laughs> but we remember when concept cars were really concept cars right you know, when you saw one, you knew it wasn't going to be made in that vein, but they were looking at the basic styling of the interior. There was something there that the, the yep. designers wanted to test the public's opinion on. Now, when you see a concept car, they say, wink, wink, it's a concept, <laughs> yeah. concept car. You know, the, the real one will have smaller wheels on it, but that's about it. Yeah. Well, you uh, agree. I, yeah so but- when, there, when there is a real, go ahead. There, the Buick Grand National. These days. It's great. Yes. Yeah. Right. The Buick Grand National was a prime example of that. All right, let's black out the bumpers. We'll right. put on some fancy wheels and we'll embroider the seats. Oh, by the way, it's going to be available in the dealership next week. Right. The well, the Europeans are still doing some of the way out concept cars, but uh, there's not as much of that as there used to be, and I miss that. And actually, yep. when we talk about auto shows, that's one of the things that the Tokyo Motor Show always did yes. the best, I think. Mm-hmm. And now that that's, you know, that is suffering the same plight as other auto shows. So 
we may be losing that uh, a bit, if not completely. So everybody has a list, John. The top, the top ten cars that I want someday. I do have a cheat sheet. Okay, hold on. <laughs> he knew this was coming. Yeah. And yeah, we, we, yeah. You were nice enough to tip me off, so I didn't have to yes. sit here and struggle. We're gonna we're gonna take a break. We're gonna okay. take a break here, and when we come back. We're going to get John's list. He doesn't have to give us 10, but, you know, sometimes we, remember I got Bob, we, we actually asked Bob's and I once asked somebody for like the top five and they ended up giving us what, 13? Yeah, something like that. Yes. When we return, John Davis, Motor Week, his top 10 list. Hey, no one else is doing it anymore. Might as well be us. That's we'll be back right here on the Talking About Cars podcast right after this. Back to another edition of the Talking About Cars podcast here on radio.com and, of course, the Two Tired Guys Productions channel on YouTube. Uh, John Davis, Motor Week, joining us here. And when we last talked with him, just mere moments ago, uh, he had in his hands a, a little crib note about what is his top 10 list that we all have. Come on, you know we all have it. The top 10 list of cars I want someday. John, take it away. Okay. I mentioned Carol Shelby before. My number one pick is a Shelby Daytona Coupe. I don't even care where it runs. I just want to look <laughs> at it. Because the first time I ever saw one was in Shelby's shop, and I fell in love with it, and he, they hadn't even made its first race yet. Uh, on top of that, something else he had a lot to do with, a Ford GT40 Mark II. Mm -hmm. uh, going to high school, the Ford dealer uh, in town, he actually had one of the, uh, the production models of it. And his oldest son used to drive it every day. And when I, I waited by his house so I could follow it. Yeah. Uh, the first uh, exotic car that I ever drove that I really thought was well thought out and a real car, the Enzo Ferrari. Mm -hmm. That's number three. Uh, the, the newer 2006 Ford GT is number four. Uh, the original Dodge Viper and from 92, yes. just because it was such a hunk. Uh, then I'd like to have my old 1990 Miata back, the exact <laughs> car I had in the blue. Uh, if I was looking at vintage vehicles, uh, 64 or 65 uh, Ford Thunderbird. Of course, I mentioned my Di Tommaso Pantera. I probably should have that a little higher in the list. Uh, if I was looking at something brand new, it would be a 911 Turbo. And uh, my number 10, I think the best four-door sedan that has ever been built is the uh, 2017 or 18 BMW 540i with the uh, X-Drive. Okay. And I just think that's the epitome of four-door sedan. And nothing, uh, I don't think we'll ever see that quite that good again. So that's my top 10 list. Nice. Yes. Nice that's list. Very nice list. All right. Yes. Now on the, on the Daytona, would you consider one yeah. of the continuation cars? You know, why not? I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not against that. Uh, you know, there's, I think as long as they've been built to uh, as close to the original as possible. Uh, I, I, I can remember fawning all over uh, at a car, our local cars and coffee, uh, a mm -hmm. Cobra that I would have swore to you was an original, but it wasn't. It was one of the continuation cars. Well, Peter and Brock's even got a Daytona. He's got one of the continuation cars. Does he really? And, you know, here's the guy that that originally designed it. And I think he had some input with uh, the upgrades and improvements they've done, like roll-up windows, things that the work. Fact that a little more aerodynamics. Uh, yeah. 
Didn't they make a model car of that? I mean, it was not, you know, it looks, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to think that maybe oh, they the did. Daytona? Yeah. Hang Didn't on, they? I'll bring it down off my shelf. Oh, yeah, there you go. Well, gee, I, get, I don't I got know. It in, was that I, was that planned or not? No, <laughs> no it wasn't. No. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what's on my show. Really great, guys. <laughs> We've been working together a long time. Apparently, the vibe is going strong. I didn't know. I, 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 I'm an avid slot car collector. And ah, racer. that's true. And I have uh, all the Shelbys. Okay, yeah, go get it. And while you're go getting get it. it, in case I'm not here while I'm gone, I'll be back as soon as I get here. Right. Okay. Well, whatever. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> So, John, as long as we're waiting for Bob, I couldn't help but notice in the background, forgot a bunch of cars and trains and all sorts of stuff. What do you what do you have behind you? Well, let's see. I've got, of course, a, a, a Ford GT. Uh, I've got a couple of toy drones, and it's purely just uh, stuff that uh, I play around with at home. We, <laughs> we have two very good drone operators uh, that work on our road test, but I'm not one of them. But I have a lot of uh, HO uh, gauge, sorry, uh, Lionel trains. I inherited a collection from my older brother, and I've added to it over the years. And these passenger cars that you're looking at, they're sticking out. They are um, some of the, I think they were the largest Lionel uh, extruded aluminum uh, passenger cars that they ever made. So, I mean, I can't say they're, I wish they were a little cleaner. I, I don't basically dust them every day. But I, I like I've always liked trains. I've never had a really huge layout, but we pull them out at Christmas and I've got them on uh, for display and so forth. So trains, I've got model planes all over the place here. Some I built, some were built by a, a friend of mine. Uh, so, you know, like I said, if it's, it's transportation oriented, uh, not a lot of boats here, but we've done a few boats on the, on the show over the years. We do, we do motorcycles every couple of months. Mm -hmm. So if it's got wheels or, wings or motors and it moves or one way or the other uh, i'm kind of interested in it and we cover it on the show at some point I, you know uh, i think i have lots i have lots of little things i mean i've got all sorts of model cars none of, most of them just things trinkets that you would get by going to some new car preview and they would give you a little paperweight to take home i've got all sorts of stuff cars probably nobody's ever heard of anymore uh -huh. even with that quick yeah no, I think uh, any any car guy worth his salt still has his Matchbox cars or Hot Wheels from his yes. uh, from his childhood I, days. I'm sorry, I have mine in, in a box, a memorabilia box that I guard with my life. I, I had Matchbox airplanes, <laughs> which most people didn't know existed. Oh uh, wow! So, yeah. So, of course, the big problem with all of my stuff is it's That's used. It was well played with. You know. So uh -huh. The paint scraped off of it or whatever. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. I hear that. Just so, it matches my shirt. You want my mailing address? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, as I got something to, else. As opposed to some of us who, by the way, somehow lost the box. This is something I got. Uh, turbine car. Uh, yes, this is something I got from a neighbor who worked at a Dodge dealer in Santa Monica right. many, many years ago when I was a kid. And he got it for me. And I thought, this is awesome. And I held on to it. But somewhere along the line, I, before I realized what boxes do to the value yeah. of said vehicle, it, it the box is no longer yeah. with us. So you just never know. But it's funny, uh, 
a friend of mine asked me about uh, the turbine car just about a week ago. And I, I actually sat in one once. It was up at Chrysler Proving Ground and they had brought it out for the press. And we all got, I, th I don't think it had the turbine in it anymore. I don't remember actually driving it, but we had had a chance to actually, you know, crawl all over it and sit in it. And it was in their museum at the time. So yeah, pretty cool car. In 1964, I went to the New York World's Fair and the Chrysler Pavilion yep. gave you rides in the turbine car. Oh, well, wow. I was there too, but I don't remember that. I guess my uh, dad didn't take me to there because I'm sorry I missed that. Yeah, I, I did. I remember uh, it. Yeah, I, and I got to ride in the back seat. And I thought that was the most amazing thing. And it was also there for the introduction of the Mustang. Yeah, that's what we went for. Yeah, and I had mm -hmm. gone, my aunt lived in Queens and we were living in Detroit at the time. So I would spend as much time as I could out of Detroit and I'd stay with my aunt. Then I'd hop on the subway, head over to uh, the World's Fair. And I remember mm -hmm. it was so cheap. I could go just about every other day sure. to get in. And uh, now here's the inspiration for what Peter Brock designed. Yeah. <laughs> So this is. Uh, hey, tell me what that is, because I think Bob, I it's, it's the ACSC. AC, yes, that's it. AC. I mean, for that matter, that was you know he had already built the Cobra based on an AC design. So. Right, and they had a, they had a coupe version yeah. that they were selling in Europe. It didn't make it here. Uh, we actually had. There's a gentleman here in uh, Southern California uh, that has a number of Cobras, and he has one of these, mm. the real one, but he updated it to Cobra spec. Instead of having the little six-cylinder Bristol motor or BMW motor at the time, uh, he had uh, he had just upgraded and made it into a Cobra. I'm kind of sorry he did that. I mean, yeah, but was, you know, for, most people don't know what it is anyway. But you, when you watch a, an old British movie and you see the old ACs running around, yeah. or for that matter, the old the old, uh, uh, the old uh, Tigers running around, yes. you know, you say, "Gosh, I, you know, they were great little cars in their own right." before anybody you know, stuffed a big engine in them or anything else. I decided I wanted to find out what auto auctions were really like. So I volunteered as a driver mm -hmm. for one of them. And it happened to be right after Carol had passed mm -hmm. and Cleo was getting rid of some of the inventory. Mm -hmm. I got to drive his personal 289 Cobra, wow. which was an automatic. No and, the and the story I got from Cleo is that he built 16 of them for, G for uh, Ford executives. Uh, I guess they couldn't drive stick. None of so, them would drive a stick. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he made these uh, these Cobras. And I'll tell you what, that was the most exhilarating drive at four miles an hour that I've ever done. <laughs> and uh, it, it was just an amazing car to be in. I'd been in a couple of replicas before, but the real thing is just so better. So much better. It, it almost feels alive. Well, yes. I do think cars are alive. So, yeah. Uh, well, but, the 289 just would rev so quickly. Yeah. yeah it, it was a great motor. It, yep. just, I mean, it was just a beautiful piece of work. John Davis joining us from Motor Week. John, when do the new shows start and where could we find you? Every or, week. Or, uh, it, we got back into, we stopped production uh, last year in middle of March. And we basically aired repeats till we came back the 1st of June. So we were one of the first, I'm proud to say, national TV series to get back into full production. Uh, we've had to make a lot of, compromises and how we shoot you don't see as many people inside the cars as you used to because we're worried about proximity of our testers to our, our camera operators our videographers and so a lot of a lot of things have changed uh, but if you go to our website motorweek.org 
up or .com, whichever one, you go up into the corner where it says about the show, pull it down, and there's a station listing button. You put in your zip code or your town and state. It'll tell you where uh, we're on. You can also see us uh, on Tuesday nights at 7.30 Eastern on Motor Trends, a cable channel, part of Discovery, mm -hmm. uh, where, of course, our YouTube channel is where a lot of people see us, uh, youtube.com slash motorweek. Everything we do on the show is segmented and is there within about 10 days of when we, we air it. And we do about, about 3 million people uh, tune us in just on YouTube uh, every month. Uh, we're also on what's called PBS Living, which is part of uh, Amazon's Prime uh, service. So we like to say if you've got a screen, you can find MotorWeek. But MotorWeek.org is a good place to start. And you can also find almost all of our road tests there as well. And I got to tell you, the quality of the programming, if you watch his first show 40 years ago, 1981, on YouTube, and then you, for example, I watched on my cell phone, my iPhone, uh, one of your recent shows, good grief, it had better quality on my iPhone than my television. So whoever's working your quality production control over there at uh, Maryland Public Television, thumbs up to them. We've always been very, that's one of the things that sometimes people have criticized public TV uh, for, sometimes being worried more about quality than content. I don't think that's true, but we do tend to look at quality. We were one of the first TV shows to use GoPros. Uh, GoPro actually contacted us in their earliest days. And GoPros have revolutionized not just personal video use, but they've revolutionized television. Uh, we were very early on the uh, uh, drone scene. Uh, so when new technology comes out, we've embraced it because it gives us more shots in fewer times. If you looked at, go back and look at that first show, the road test of the Escort had maybe 20 shots in it for mm -hmm. five minutes. Mm -hmm. And now it's 65 and 70 shots for the same length mm -hmm. of time. And we've had to do that just because TV has gotten faster and the pace has gotten faster. But it's things like GoPros and uh, drones that enable you and DSLRs that enable you to do that. Uh, to give you an example, to get a racetrack hanging out the, the window wheel shot, you know, at a racetrack, it would take us an hour and a half 20 years ago to strap the camera to the car to get the, the videographer in a harness, the camera weighs 75 pounds, and you get out and you do it and you've got a couple of shots. Now we spend 10 minutes slapping five or six GoPros on it. We do a lap and we're done. Mm -hmm. A little suction cup and you're there. Exactly. So technology, what's happened to the medium, making cameras smaller and better. I mean, whoever imagined, when you look at the first race cams that we used to see in NASCAR and road racing, we had one of those little tubes that I think Panasonic made them. Now you look at the quality you're getting out of a GoPro that costs you a couple hundred bucks versus several thousand, and it's absolutely amazing. So uh, it's that kind of thing that we've embraced as it comes along because we knew it would make the show better. You know, putting suction cups on a cameraman and plastering them <laughs> to the side of the car, just never, you know, it was always too dangerous and insurance prices were up and it was we always a problem. We never told anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Duct tape. Exactly. Oh yes, we used a lot of that too. <laughs> John Davis, thank you so much for joining us. Remember to listen, like, and share, and most important, subscribe to our audio podcast at radio.com and of course our video podcast on the two tired guys productions youtube page when you subscribe either way when subscribe when a new uh 
show comes up, we will let you know when a new show comes up. Remember, when you subscribe, it helps us. It helps you. That's right. right. Don't forget that. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Randy. That's Bob. That's John. Having fun talking about cars. See you next time, everybody. Take care.